I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that I record these episodes on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Today's guest is Terence Jayaretnam. Terence and I worked together several years ago when I was at EY, where he was and still is a partner in the climate change and sustainability practice. Terence is an environmental engineer and is EY's national leader for Indigenous reconciliation, as well as the diversity and inclusion leader for EY's Melbourne office. Terence is of Sri Lankan descent and continues to support NGOs and social enterprises fighting for social justice in Sri Lanka and here in Australia, which you'll hear more about in the episode. In this episode, Terence really dives into what drives his work and his leadership style. It's an honest and inspiring conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Terence, thanks for being on Goodwill Hunters. It's great to have you. Thanks for the opportunity and and nice to be chatting again, Rachel. Absolutely. So we, as you pointed out, haven't spoken in a couple of years. So this is a nice chance to catch up on your work as well and everything that you're up to beyond the LinkedIn updates that that I see. Um, But I wanted to start by asking you about your childhood and how some of those early years shaped the, the leader that you've seen yourself become. Yeah, so I had a. I might start with, I, I guess, where uh, I've been through through my childhood. So I, I, I was born in Sri Lanka, and and um, and this is relevant to some of the answers. I grew up mostly in the southern part of Sri Lanka, um, which is the Sinhalese sort of part of Sri Lanka. I'm a Tamil, um, and. Uh, and then I moved to, well, we as a family moved to Australia in 1986, I was about 15. Um, and I grew up in Perth and I moved to Melbourne, I've been in Melbourne for about 20 years now. Um, so th- th- that's sort of relevant to s- some of the um, formative experiences. So growing up in Sri Lanka, and um, many would have heard this, particularly in international development, that it has been a, a country that's been ravaged by civil war, and that's primarily between the Tamils and the Sinhalese. Uh, and we were sort of in Sinhalese country, so to speak, when the sort of main uh, civil rights broke out in 1983. And uh, we essentially what was happening was uh, from Colombo through all of, all of the south, um, Tamils were living in single areas were being targeted, killed, houses burnt down, uh, all, all of those things. And it sort of spread over a course of a week uh, in, in response to a Tamil tiger attack on the Sinhalese army. Um, and we uh, sort of got wind of it 24 hours before. And we also knew that um, we were targeted, one of the targeted families. So we went into hiding and unfortunately my mum was a teacher uh, in uh, the local convent and so we went into hiding and, and the nuns hit us uh, and so our house was burnt down and we lost everything but we survived and, and I was um, what, 13 at the time uh, and look I, th- I think that sort of um, with the initial I always had this sense but 
with the initial sort of real reality around how there's um, discrimination in the world uh, and, uh, you know, how, you know, you shouldn't be surprised with any sort of human behaviour um, that, that might um, happen. So anyway, we, we moved to the north for a, a couple of years and then moved out under the, uh, at the time, the Hawk refugee policy out of um, Sri Lanka. Um, and so th th that was, uh, I guess that sort of um, was one of the formative experiences for me, both building resilience, but understanding uh, discrimination, human behavior and so on. Uh, I think, um, and we'll talk through this, but I've spent a fair bit of time in the indigenous sector. Uh, and one of, the, one of the reasons is because I had a lot to do with indigenous families um, growing up in Perth because my mum was a teacher and then a principal in an all-Indigenous school in WA. Um, so, you know, going, playing basketball and, and all those sort of things. Um, um, I sort of um, spent a lot of time with Indigenous communities as opposed to most um, Anglo-Saxon people in Australia. Uh, and and, and so that gives you a different perspective. And, and I think the third um, is probably around sports and, um, you know, that, that sort of giving you that team playing competitiveness and so on. So I played a lot of basketball. I, I did karate. I'm back in karate now for about the last 10 years, teaching karate and so on. So and th that's um, also been really important in, in the way um, I think about things. It's a really amazing exposure to have as a child to both the Sri Lankan context and then obviously the Indigenous communities that, that your mum and by extension your family were involved in. It must be frustrating, you know, 30 plus years on to see the situation in Sri Lanka continue. I saw the protests in Adelaide a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if they were in other capital cities as well, but you know, this, this issue is as problematic as ever, which must be frustrating for you and, and everyone in, in, in Sri Lankan diaspora, not to mention those living there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting, yeah, and, and um, something that I, I didn't expect to change a lot. I think knowing intimately the issues in Sri Lanka, um, the, the sort of um, racial issues, the religious issues, but also the corruption in governments. Um, you know, when you mix all of those, it, it tends to be um, very hard to work your way out of, out of that. Um, we're um, sort of quite um, strongly connected to a, a Sri Lankan, Australian charity that's working primarily in Sri Lanka called Bridging Lanka. Um, so week in, week out, we're across um, the situation that's happening there. And, and um, so we just finished a fundraising campaign and some gala dinners, which um, is going to help feed a thousand families locally. Um, one, one of the, one of the uh, things that um, I've sort of, you know, looking deeply into the issue, this sort of issue of human contradictions is really interesting. And, and, we see that everywhere. So if you look at um, World War II and Germany and how some Jews were treated differently than other Jews and, and therefore 
the the um, Germans um, felt better about um, what they were doing. It's the same sort of issues in Sri Lanka. There's there's uh, some Tamil ministers and some um, people in in uh, high powered uh, institutions, but they're the exception rather than the norm, and and the rest of the community tends to be excluded. But that aside, I think that more recent issues uh, are to do with the whole country uh, and the whole country potentially defaulting on um, on their loans. And, you know, when you talk about international development, I think Sri Lanka will be one that's going to need a lot of support over the next couple of decades, given where they've got to. Um, mm. A lot of investment in international development is in leadership and strengthening government systems. Um, with with very mixed results. I don't know if you have a view on that and if there is a, a right or wrong way to go about that. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting um, question. I, I probably don't have substantial information on how much um, leadership development goes on in, in international development, but from some of the boards that I'm involved with, which are particularly focused on international development, the primary one being fair trade, uh, Australia and New Zealand. Um, I, I do see that there's um, been over time quite a lot of investment both in Fair Trade International but also Fair Trade Australia and New Zealand in terms of um, leadership um, development. Um, so, I, I, and this will sort of go into some of the challenges I think um, these organisations face as well, but I think one of the um, one of the challenges is uh, attracting the right caliber of people. So there are certain types of people who are interested in international development and certain types of people who are interested in joining JP Morgan and JB Weir and making lots of money. And um, I, I don't know whether there's too many examples of international development organizations being able to attract that highly commercial mindset into um, international development. So th that's not to say that, you know, we've got the wrong caliber of people, but we certainly um, end up with a certain um, type of person within international development and in some of the sustainability areas that I work in. And, um, you know, the, the biggest development opportunity then is to ensure that they are trained to work like they're working in a JB Weir, um, that they're highly commercial and that their outcomes focused and, and they're not just happy hitting the targets but to do exceptionally well with bonuses and incentives and so on and so forth, which, which we don't see. But um, going back to the question about um, training and uh, development, um, I think I think there is a fair bit, um, and I think that's helpful. Uh, I, I do I do think that uh, the focus may have to be on finding um, you know the, the different um, types of people, not just a, sort of one type of personality within international development. I think that's right. I think that need for diverse. Um, cognitive abilities, diverse sort of approaches to problem solving is really crucial. But another interesting theme that's come up a lot throughout this series is it's a question of, do we have different leadership styles 
in the NGO sector versus the private sector versus government. And my reflection on private sector leadership is that it often needs to be a little bit more authoritarian than it is collaborative. And sometimes the NGO sector has more room for collaboration, perhaps because some of those commerciality elements aren't there. What's your reflection on that and the different leadership styles? Yeah, I think I think you're spot on uh, around private sector um, being more authoritarian, and uh, you know, whilst showing or trying to be collaborative, or, or trying to show that there's collaborative um, tendencies, and you know, I think the private sector has also evolved to a lot less hierarchical over the last decade or so. Um, whereas in international development, you do get um, the sort of um, consensus building and collaborative culture um, that, uh, you know, you, you um, I think, expect to see in inter- international development. Um, in public sector, I think you get a mix. I think um, uh, some public sector organisations can be much more hierarchical and much more authoritative than private sector, um, whereas others that um, are sort of outer budget agencies um, like some of the water utilities and so on, it tends to be a lot more collaborative um, and um, a lot more focused on diversity and, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting observation. And, you know, I, I, I don't know whether collaboration necessarily means it's a bad thing. Um, it probably just needs to be balanced with um, the right levels of commercial um, allegation authority. Mm. And you've had quite a, a, a long leadership journey now. Um, as our listeners would know, you're a partner at EY in the sustainability practice, but you're also on a number of boards in, in the social space, um, which really represents the heights of leadership for a lot of people. Like partnership at a big firm is is sort of one definition of leadership. How did that journey unfold for you? And at what point did you realize you wanted to pursue a board career as well? Mm. Um, the leadership, my, my career trajectory, and, and a lot of people say this, uh, it is, has not been a planned one. It's really been a series of accidents and mostly good accidents. Um, so uh, I, I think uh, the real leadership began for me um, with uh, becoming an environmental engineer. Uh, And I became an environmental engineer when environmental engineering wasn't recognized by the College of um, Engineers. So there wasn't a College of Environmental Engineers. So I spent a lot of time with Engineers Australia with others and building the College of Environmental Engineering. And and now it's a recognized form of engineering. Um, and uh, as a consequence of that, I ended up chairing the College of Environmental Engineers uh, and the Society for Environmental Engineering. Uh, and so those were my sort of early experiences in chairing organisations or chairing committees. Um, as you know, I then went on to, again, accidentally start up a consulting firm, which um, happened to do really well because um, the policies 
just happened to go our way at the time with Kevin Rudd coming with power and uh, signing Kyoto Protocol and so on and so forth. So um, a lot of good management and uh, good luck rather than good management. But um, that that really, I think, set the course for um, leading an organisation and, and eventually um, being brought up by EY and um, becoming a partner within EY. So uh, that's been the sort of trajectory. Again, nothing that I've sort of planned. I've never sort of thought I wanted to be a partner in a, in a big Ford accounting firm. Um, and I've tended to follow um, the work much more than my own sort of path or my own um, status within the work. Um, having said that, um, I've seen um, where I've got to as an opportunity to potentially sort of start to f- help fix some of the things, help contribute to areas that um, need help. And, and th- they're, they're the sort of boards that I've uh, primarily got onto. Um, either they're focused on issues like sustainability um, or social justice issues or international development um, issues. And um, and that's been quite rewarding. Um, you know, as, as you know, um, uh, working in a um, large consulting firm can, um, you know, can, can be quite overwhelming. Um, but if, you, if you've got pathways where you, you're contributing and, and they're rewarding to you, I think that um, helps you as, as much as uh, you're trying to help them. Um, and in terms of, um, that question about whether um, whether the leadership, yeah, I've sort of, I, I think um, I've had to grow into some of the roles that have um, that I've been uh, put into. So, as an example, the partnership at EY took me about eighteen months to get my head around exactly what that means um, and what I could do and couldn't do, uh, and what my KPIs were, um, but it. Yeah, I've had to grow into some of those um, roles. It's interesting when people describe their career as a, a series of happy accidents, and a lot of people do in similar roles to you. And my reaction to that is often, yes, there was a series of accidents, but you would have had to have made a choice to be open to all of the doors that were opening for you, right? Rather than resisting some of those opportunities that were emerging, you would have had to have been a person that went, yes, like I'll go down this rabbit hole and explore this opportunity that's just kind of landed on my lap. Is that right for you? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, and and that's, that's both a, a good thing and a bad thing. I find it hard to say no to, no to things. So I, I'm increasingly starting to um, prioritise opportunities and, and uh, um, look at saying no or, or recommending others um, that may be more suitable um, to to things so, because both both the sort of sustainability area, uh, but also all of the sort of social justice areas that I'm involved in, um, are getting a lot more prominence. Uh, and so there's there's quite a few knocks on the door. Um, um, so yeah, you're right. I, I have been open to opportunities in in terms of exploring those and and where I've felt that I can really make a difference and and. I will learn a lot. I have um, ensured that um, I've you know, done my best to get on onto those opportunities. 
And you mentioned before that you've been or you are on the board of Fairtrade and um, have had a number of other board roles in the for-purpose space. What is the biggest challenge that you see boards in the social sector or the for-purpose space facing at the moment? Yeah, so some of the experiences that um, I've had, I, I was on the board of B-Lab, so talking about for-purpose, B-Lab Australia New Zealand it was an inaugural board um, and um, Net Balance uh, was a B corporation. Um, the other boards that I'm on at the moment include uh, Food Frontier, which is an alternative protein um, non-profit um, that's focused on growing the ecosystem around alternative proteins and cell-based proteins, as well as precision uh, fermentation, uh, really focusing on, I guess, the non-dairy and meat, uh, industrial meat sectors. Uh, and the third one is the Australian Board of um, Global Citizen, which is a, a, a large um, non-profit advocacy base that is looking to eradicate poverty by 2030 um, and, and also doing other things like um, focused at the moment on, on the Ukraine issue. Um, and I think the planetary issues, particularly around climate um, and the large sort of um, environmental and biodiversity issues that the world's facing are finally starting to um, impact financially and GDP-wise countries, uh, including large economies. Um, and so one of the challenges, and, and we're seeing this in Australia, we've seen this the last decade or so, is that international funding, international development funding, has been one of the areas of cuts because there's more money needed elsewhere. And I think this is something that, you know, logically, if you look at, it, look at the sort of system, system view of it, it is going to continue to be an issue for international development agencies and charities. The second, I think, is climate itself. So that's a compounding factor on on top of all of the issues that international development agencies and, and these charities face. Um, so if you if I think about fair trade and the farmers uh, that we work with and the producers, they've got climate as a big issue uh, in terms of yield and how to manage climate impacts. If I think about global citizen and eradicating poverty, again, climate change is gonna mean that there's gonna be more refugees and less food and so these issues are compounding the, the um, impact that we're seeing um, that these charities and nonprofits are focused on. Um, digital is, is an interesting, important area that, you know, we see commercial organizations have moved very quickly onto, but the charity and the nonprofit sector has been slow to move. So if you think about certification organizations like fair trade, digital could play a central part of how you, you know, how your certification is managed um, through blockchain and so on. But um, that's still a work in progress. Um, and so I think digital is going to be digital transformation of these organizations is going to be a major challenge uh, and uh, a major need 
for them um, over the next decade or so. They're, they're probably the main ones. I think attracting the right caliber of people, you know, issues like COVID compounding what they need to do on the ground, um, like fair trade couldn't do much on the ground for the last two years. Um, they're, they're all not helping, but hopefully that those change. But I think some of the other issues like climate are going to be there for a while. Yeah, I think you've raised a good point there that in many ways, this, to speak very generally, social need is greater than ever due to a, a series of, of compounding factors, both domestically and throughout the region. And so the urgency of the work that a lot of these for-purpose social sector organisations are doing is greater than ever. Um, but in many ways, their funding and resourcing hasn't increased to match that need. And I was having a conversation with someone yesterday, not in a podcast capacity, but talking about how once there was this perception that board roles for NGOs or unpaid board roles were something you just did out of the goodness of your heart, rather than because there was a very specific need for your skill set. And I think I hope, I hope the tide is changing on that and we're realizing that there are very specific skills required in these roles, very important, paid or unpaid, um, and it's not something you can just do from a place of pure altruism or charity. Do you know what I mean? I, I absolutely agree. And I, and I think, um, you know, even if you look at some of the commercial board roles versus some of the nonprofit board roles, I think there's more challenges in some way in the sort of development and nonprofit sector. Um, so you absolutely have to, from a director duty point of view, you've got to be um, thinking about the strategy day in, day out, thinking about the challenges and working with management and sometimes working, we find, um, much more with management than commercial entities. Um, so there's a lo lot more of a hands-on role um, by board members, I find in nonprofits than um, in uh, paid commercial roles. So, no, I, I agree. It, it can't be seen as a um, nice to have on the CV or uh, something that um, you're, you're doing because um, you're giving back time. Um, it's absolutely something that's vital to um, the, the functioning of those entities and the growth of those entities. And so with that in mind, to finish, I wanted to ask you if there's a particular skill that current or aspiring board directors should be nurturing to sort of meet some of these challenges that we've talked about. Is it resilience? Is it strategic thinking? What is it that that um, board directors should be nurturing as a skill? I, I think um, getting experience um, on sort of more commercial boards is something that's going to be valuable, not just boards, but even commercial management. Um, so having um, some people from commercial backgrounds is going to be useful. Um, I also think from, from the organisation's point of view, the organisation needs to look at um, the range of skill sets it needs in order to be successful whether that's networks or whether that's political connection or whether that's policy or, or, or climate change. And climate change has come up in a number of nonprofit boards these days as one that um, 
these boards require. Um, so I'd, I'd probably say on top of your own um, skill set that you've developed through your career, um, you, you'd probably want to get some um, either training or some experience on areas that you're less familiar with in order to be more well-rounded um, you know, coming into coming into a non-profit uh, board. I do think they all present excellent training opportunities as well uh, for, for people aspiring to be board members. So I think you learn as much as you bring to those organisations. Um, and, um, you know, that, that's, you know, that's in itself, I think, will help you go into your next board role and, and take that experience with you. I think that's really valuable advice. Thanks, Terence. Thanks, Rachel. That was Terence J. Retnam on Goodwill Hunters. I'll be here next week for the next instalment in our leadership series. I'll see you then.